Before Russia attacked, we made sure Russia had javelins and other weapons to strengthen the defenses so Ukraine was ready whatever happened. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program on a busy, busy week, fellas. Seriously. I mean, this is our third show because we did drop the emergency pod yesterday. Yeah, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, we go deep dive into the SCOTUS leaked um, uh, opinion. It's it's fun. It's a good time. It's good. And, you know, there's some substantive stuff. We have some fun with it. But I I think, look, it, it was an important topic to get out there because now... If you listen to it and you read the news today, it all makes sense. Yeah, you feel yeah. pretty smart. That's what that's what you get when you listen to the Ruthless Variety program. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, what you heard at the top was our president uh, with another just absolutely exquisite A choice gem. of words. <laughs> uh, the, saying that uh, we made sure that Russia had javelins and other weapons. That's uh, good. Wow. I think that's probably because Hunter was getting a 10% rip. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little bit, little bit for the big guy. Yeah, uh, I love it. Uh, so we got a good show here today. We have uh, Congressman Andy Barr, who's a good friend. He's gonna, been a good friend of mine for a number of years. Um, but with the reason this is so timely is because he is like the aficionado for horse racing in Congress. Oh yeah, that's right? right, Kentucky Derby. That's right. And the Derby is this weekend, so we get his Derby picks. We get, yeah, I mean, everything. He goes deep on this stuff. Talks a little bit about horse fighting too, Smuggy. He doesn't like your chances. <laughs> doesn't like your chances. Uh, and he talks about how they breed horses and all kinds of disgusting stuff in there too. You'll love it. It's going to be a good interview. It's fantastic. Um, you know what else? I think since this is Derby Saturday um, and Michael Duncan does have the power to uh, tweet for the Ruthless Variety program, maybe we should tweet out uh, program picks. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the fellas should should make some picks, and maybe we should tweet them out. That's but a great idea. I gotta be. I really haven't done done a lot of studying yet on the Derby. Well, Andy's gonna help you out. Yeah, I need a cheat sheet from Andy. Andy's are they, are help they letting uh, Bob Baffert in? Or no, no, I don't think so. Uh, doesn't he have a band? He's banned. We yeah. talked a little bit about your view of the junkie horse. Yeah, then it's yeah. garbage. Then it's he, not a real race. He doesn't. Uh, he Without doesn't him, subscribe. it's not a real Derby. This is a fake Derby. <laughs> fake Derby. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay. So, um, boy, the animal content is really off the charts. These it days. really yeah, is. It is. We've had like three weeks. I think, just... I think we're motivating the animal kingdom. Like, they're trying to get the coverage now at this point. <laughs> totally. Because even today, we've got some really wild stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always good. <laughs> Who knew we'd become an animal fighting podcast exclusively? <laughs> this is fantastic. Uh, we have a sponsor for today's program. It's the State Financial Officers Federation, and they're working to stamp out new woke requirements for state credit ratings. If you haven't followed this issue, we're going to get you up to speed. And we also have an interview that we're going to do with this guy, Marlo Oak, who's the treasurer of Utah, is sort of leading the charge on this. But it's a super important issue, and it ties a little bit back in a different way to what we were talking about yesterday in terms of the left pressure campaign on corporations yep and this is something that elon's been talking about a lot lately you know he's got tweets and 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 opinions about how ridiculous this stuff is yeah so you know 
Yeah, everyone I, get get caught on this before it becomes the mainstream news, and you already know what's going on. Yeah, you're gonna have to get get up to speed on it. But these folks, they focus on empowering state treasurers and auditors to have a larger voice. I mean, these are the elected officials in their states. Not everyone's elected, but many of them are. But the point is, is that they actually have some understanding of what their state's interests are. Right. Right. And you've seen a bunch of of investment uh, banks and ratings agencies even yeah that begin to try to slip woke uh addendums into any agreements for financing God, which is just, incredibly dangerous it's just infected everything everything in our culture it's, it's incredible it's totally crazy it's everything from like black lives matter to climate change energy stuff i mean i think the big loser on all of this thus far has been energy companies, right? Which yeah. go figure, you, you pissed off about your gas prices? Well, have a look at, at what these guys are doing. Um, and the State Financial Officers Federation is trying to, to, to fight back against all of it. It's a super important thing. Like I cannot emphasize enough, if conservatives don't win this battle, mm-hmm. uh, well, this is them that's trying to clamp their, the, their teeth into the financial system. That's what this is. Right. Like, you know, you, you've heard these stories about people being deep platform from even banking for their opinions. Well, this is setting a precedent where credit ratings are determined based on wokeness, which is which is complete insanity. It's complete insanity. Everything f- that to like employment standards, right? Where like what benefits like sex change benefits you may have to have your give your employees in order to qualify for That's just wild. It's just it think is, about think crazy. Of, think about that coming up in like a due diligence. Yeah. Like, you know, when you're thinking about whether something's economically viable. Right. It's insane. It's 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 completely nuts. So it's ESG is why is what it's like the the term that people talk about the shorthanded ESG standards, but that's what this is. And like Elon, Elon pointed out, uh, for you know, ESG includes environmental, yeah, like wokeness and whatever. They issued a lower rating for Tesla than for Exxon. That's insane. Because that's insane. Because well, because, he because they don't Tesla like Elon. Wasn't donating to like Black yeah. Lives Matter, and they that's don't, it. Yeah, what you just yeah. put your finger on. It's because they hadn't properly extorted. Yeah. Which, Tesla. which, right? Which, which reveals what this really is. It's not actually about any sort of principle. Nope. All it is is another extortion racket. That's all it is. Set yep. up by the left to punish their enemies. Totally. So you're going to learn a lot about that. In fact, why don't we start before we get into the meat of the program here with the interview from the treasurer Marlo Oak. I want to welcome to the program uh, an interesting guy, uh, Marlo Oaks. He's the treasurer of Utah and has been sort of leading the fight in many ways on the ESG front, ESG standards. Uh, Marlo, welcome. Thank you. Listen, your background lends itself to understanding a little bit about this kind of thing. My understanding is that you were in finance for a number of years and could sort of see some of this coming. Yes. Yeah. So I uh, have most of my career was in investment management, which is really where this is happening. Um, and I've been in investment banking for the last few years. Um, when I came back as the treasurer, you know, I had heard about ESG uh, years ago, um, but was really surprised at what was happening with ESG and how activist and, uh, I guess, aggressive it had become. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what concerned me. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, it's, it's yet another sort of end around by the, the the woke left to try to convince investors basically to put these standards upon companies of any size, really, that are, are seeking investment 
um, to try to accomplish what they never could accomplish legislatively or anything else. It's just ba- basically uh, uh, corporate bullying. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's exactly right. And and you know, to the to the credit of the left, they realize that money is power. Right. <laughs> right. right. And, and so if you if you have lots of money, you have lots of power. Um, and and that was never contemplated with with our free market capitalist system. You know, our free markets are what I think as the ultimate pluralistic institution, where you have many different uh, actors with different views of the world. And the way you gain power in that uh, institution is to bring a whole bunch of people together and, and kind of uh, consolidate the view in one direction so that capital then, then can be used as a coercive tool. And that's what we're seeing. Which is amazing, right? Because, you know, I mean, call me old fashioned, but it, it always seemed like maybe shareholders should have a uh, should have a, a, a at least some sort of assurance that in fact the company is working in the direction of i don't know gaining more money but it seems right. like <laughs> it seems like increasingly what's happening here is that the, the social consciousness that's sort of being dictated by some of these are are in some ways working in total conflict with shareholder value oh absolutely in fact that's that's i think part of the or a big focus of stakeholder capitalism is to undermine shareholder uh, supremacy, because that is ultimately the fiduciary standard for right. corporations. Um, and, and then the other side is to undermine the shareholder supremacy of investors, or sorry, the fiduciary standard of investors, which is to do uh, or make decisions that are in the best interest of the beneficiary, for example, in a, in a retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so if you can politicize those um, two standards, then, then you can absolutely do a, a social agenda because that's what, what this is, is a, a political politicization really of our capital markets. And, and, and so you do have to kind of get rid of our traditional fiduciary standards, which is very problematic. Yeah, it, it, totally problematic. But you know, I mean, what we're getting to is basically why it is that many of these companies are making the decisions they are, right? It's not just simply this just explosion of woke CEOs out there. There's a financing no. for all of this that's happening and a, and, a, and a generated push from the left that's forcing some of their hands. Yes. And what is very troubling to me are some of these initiatives that are being pushed um, by different organizations. UNPRI is one of them. Um, they are actively going after the financing companies to have them sign on to these things. So asset managers, for example, um, and the asset managers own the businesses. So you start at the top with the investment managers, you get them on board with a, with this program um, to push ESG standards uh, across the country. And they go then to the companies that they own um, and they force it down into those companies, which then trickles down into society. Um, it's a very ingenious plan, but we've got to stop it because uh, it is literally like we have declared war on ourselves. Uh, and so that companies that would in the past do business with whomever they chose to are now being forced to not do business with with companies that have some tinge of fossil fuel to them or, or are fossil fuel related or traditional energy right. related. It's very troubling. Um, because we, this is literally uh, the end of free market capitalism. We don't have free markets today in the United States. 
And we've got to wake up to that and push this back or, or we won't have free market capitalism and we are undermining our constitutional republic. That's just scary, fascinating and scary. Tell me a little bit about, because you've been locking horns on this issue in Utah. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you all have been doing to push back on all this at home. Yeah. So um, thankfully, we have a united front here in the state of Utah. Uh, we, we take our credit rating uh, very seriously. We have never been rated below AAA. Uh, since whenever a rating agency started rating us, we were AAA and that has never ended. Um, and so we see it as a key asset of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to introduce a political rating uh, potentially harms our ability to access capital in the capital markets. And what you're referring to is, is S&P, right? Standard Correct. beginning to provide some sort of political criteria by which they, they also rate your, your credit rating. That, that's right. So, so suddenly we are now going to have a separate rating, uh, ESG rating, and it's a political rating. That's all it is. Give me an example of like an ESG standard that they've thrown into the middle of this. Uh, so really the, the main one that they focused on was the drought here in the West, right? And, and my point like a climate was- change, Like a climate change directive? Well, so they were saying that, you know, that, that, that the drought- um, presents uh, financial risk depending on how we deal with it because of water shortages and things of that nature, which of course that that's, that's potentially a legitimate um, uh, issue to bring up, but it does not mean that we should have a separate ESG rating. If it's going to be material to our financial position, then it should be outlined in a traditional credit rating. And it always has, there's no reason to create a separate rating for anything that has material impact on the financial ability of a state to pay its debt. Mm-hmm. And so that's the biggest uh, issue that I have is that there is no reason uh, to, to call out political ratings um, because those will change and they can be manipulated and they can be turned against a state uh, and have the capital markets, just like what we're seeing with fossil fuel companies, have capital markets turn against a particular that's state. Right. Um, and so it is rife with problems and we have got to stop this or we're essentially declaring war on ourselves. Yeah, well, that's very well said, because if you don't nip it in the bud at the beginning, what you end up with is an entirely subjective bunch of criteria that has absolutely nothing to do with the economics of, of the state or any sort of company or whatever. But all that's of a right. sudden, social agenda, as we've seen play out sort of across the country. Yeah, and, and we're, we, are, we are moving to a red economy and a blue economy, and, and that's not good for any of us. No. So I, I am, you know, I have said, look, this needs to be a bipartisan issue. If you care about the United States of America, then you will be against ESG because this is divisive uh, and it is, um, it is putting politics where it was never intended to be. And, and taking it away from where it was supposed to be, which is the public square and the legislative process. Absolutely. That's the, the core of democracy. Listen, Marlo Oaks, the treasurer of Utah, you're doing great work on this. Keep us updated. Thank you. Appreciate it. So it's really interesting stuff. The thing I like about this guy is that he was actually in the investment banking business for long. So he, so he, he actually sees it coming. Yeah. And he knows where the pressure campaign. So he's able to fight back effectively. Yeah. Right? This is not a guy who's, who's going to take this lying down. Well, that's what I mean. You know, like in football, sometimes you have somebody who's like a tight end and they go and they start playing linebacker. 
those are some of your best players in the middle because they know what's coming across. That's right. That's right. Anyway, this is an important issue. We're going to stay on top of it, actually, because this stuff is showing up more and more. And again, if we don't win this, God help us. Yeah. Um, let us start, fellas. Well, with speaking of winning. With the big news out of Ohio. Yeah. J.D. Vance won that one. I hope that all of you signed up for predicting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you did what we did, which is riding those markets to victory. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, it, like the predicted dot uh, org slash promo slash ruthless 20. Yes. Gets you free 20 bucks. It does. And if you used it on Tuesday effectively, having listened to the variety program, I hope you got a little more cash in your I, pocket. I got a great tweet from from uh, someone saying that they made, I think, $6.57. Yeah. Betting on JD last night. Yeah. And they're like, they're now like, I'm hooked. money. And they're like, let's go. No, it's I'm just, hooked. it's fun. There's nothing. And that's like, you know, why, why this sort of stuff's fun because. It's like you get to feel smart, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and make a little money feeling smart. What I liked doing uh, in that market last night was, you know, obviously I had JD to win and that paid pretty well. And but like I sold out of that position, you know, once it got to like 85 or whatever, mm-hmm. I was like, I want this money and I want to go ahead. And you know what I did is I went and I went back in on Dolan uh, to Wrote come it in, up uh, on second to, to for, for the second place well market. well both both i wrote him back so what happened was is dolan had been trading a little bit higher and then you know first initial returns come in and you know he's pretty he's down pretty low there like 11 cents or whatever and then as some of those sub- suburban areas started to come in and like cleveland comes in he started to go back up and so i like rode it back up a little bit and yeah. dump cashed out again bump and dump See, that's the well thing, i mean there's, there's those two ways to use right. predict it where it's like okay i'm going to bet on the outcome and i'm just going to sit and, and and like you know the market will resolve you know we decide right once they call the race the other way <laughs> which i think is also fun is, is going full on wild west style of like i'm just going to ride momentum I'm not in right. this to pick a winner. Right. This one seems to be rising. Ride moment. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you just knew. You knew as the returns come in and things got tight, some people were going to get a little nervous yeah. with a little hedge on Dolan, yep. Yep. right? And that would ride it up a little bit. Then I could cash out and make a little extra coins. I got paid two ways. It's the best. That's Dude, it's predicted the is the best. It's so fun. This is the best partnership. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. But well, that... Yeah, what a great outcome for the race. I got to be honest with you guys. JD Vance is going to wipe the floor with Tim Ryan. He yeah, is he a is. great candidate. Yep. We're very fortunate to have him. He's got a well-funded super PAC, and a lot of people have been reading about that and talking about that. But I fundamentally, this is somebody from the southwestern part of the state, and most of the listeners are familiar with his story, or maybe you've listened to Hillbilly or listened to or read Hillbilly Elegy. But he's from a town in Ohio called Middletown. Not everybody who's listening to this has heard of Middletown, but Middletown is this sort of town that is uh, there. There also there are a lot of middle towns sort of spread around uh, Ohio, and so he identifies with Ohio voters in a way that that uh, few candidates before him have. It's very very special also to have somebody from our generation. Uh, yeah. running for Senate as a major candidate. So there's a lot to be excited about you know, with this fans. You know what candidacy. I got pissed off about is I saw some reporter, I can't remember who it was, trying to dunk, being like, wow, J.D. Vance could be like one of, you know, a, a new generation of Republican senators that are just, uh, you know, these uh, white Ivy League educated bros. It's like this guy came from nothing. Yeah. He yeah. got into an Ivy yeah. League school. Full yeah, scholarship. He's been underestimated his entire life. I mean, and like he's proven people wrong, and I mean, there's that nothing, used to be called the American dream. It's exactly right. There's nothing more Midwestern than like everybody counting you out. 
yeah. and you standing up and proving them wrong. The old he, chip on the shoulder. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, he, he won a, I think, I mean, this look, this primary was amazing. It was, I mean, the amount that was spent. And, <laughs> it was and, wild. I mean, there were debates where people were almost about to throw punches. There was, <laughs> was literally almost punches thrown. And, you know, of course, it, things get ugly, but things resolve themselves. I think it's the case that just about every candidate in the field, if not everybody by now, has already endorsed JD. It's all coming back together. Like this is the way it's That's supposed to work. Right. I mean, even Dolan, who was supposed, you know, supposedly the you know the, the moderate pick in this race. I didn't follow all the ins and outs of this, but he he was sort of emerging as the alternative, right? At yeah. the end, that you know, so, sort of those never Trump people were sort of mobilizing behind and all that sort of stuff. Next day, he endorsed JD. Yeah, right. That's the he, way it's supposed to work. He, right. He did it last night. He yeah. did it like as soon as the polls closed. Yeah. And do you know what Democrats' first move was? The same move as the media. Surprise, surprise. Try to separate Republicans in the state. Of course. Yeah. Totally. Which is, wh- which is to why do. we always tell you on the Ruthless Variety program, don't take the bait. Because don't take the bait. They are always on the same team trying to separate us. I mean, Tim Ryan is going to get shredded. Yeah. Shredded. Yeah. yeah. JD's a strong candidate. And so un- until Election Day, the media is going to try to come up with these crazy ass angles. To try Dude, to you know, I, like all his entire message, his entire message is like the Democratic Party is shit. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that bad. <laughs> you know, his message well, which also, tells you everything yeah. you need it's to like know the about the Democrat Party does not care about right. poor people. It doesn't care about working class right. people. Right. They just have become this like corporate party. With these like luxurious woke ideas, that's all they. Yeah, are. if he thinks he can run away from the National Democratic Party, I'm sorry, yeah, you're Tim wrong. Ryan's when you when you have every lever of power in Washington, you can't be the guy who's like, oh, you know that whole party, that whole thing that controls your life every day. That's not me. That's me. I'm different. No, I'm a queer <laughs> politician that somehow didn't do that. Yeah, right. 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 It's right. incredible. Look, he's gonna wipe his fl- wipe the floor with him, as you said. I think it's also really important to note that you're reading just all kinds of incredible bullshit about like. I saw one thing this morning was like, oh, the establishment uh, Republicans are just wringing their hands about this J.D. Vance. Look, if there's one thing I have a good handle on, it's establishment Republicans. <laughs> yeah, that is your expertise. That is your expertise. I feel like I got a real sort of pulse of, of, of these folks. Now, I don't know if they still count me as a card-carrying member or not, but I know the way that, that people think. I've never heard anyone express concern about jd vance winning that primary ever like literally i I don't know where that comes from they're like oh my god well look at republicans they're upset that jd's winning like they think they might be in trouble dude it's just prefab narratives nobody thinks that none of it's fucking real the the media just like tries to do this paint by numbers where they assume this is the thing that's going to get a certain segment of the party mad or happy or whatever. And they just write the same, churn the same bullshit they've always said. It, well, it, the journals are, are lazy and stupid. So when they think establishment <laughs> Republican, they're probably thinking like Bill Crystal, who has like, <laughs> come out and been like, we have to save abortion. <laughs> yeah, yes, that right. is definitely a conservative. Speaking right of there. Bill Crystal, he donated to uh, Tim Ryan last night. See, I mean, oh, there, there you go. He announced there it go. on Twitter. Was that before or after he announced his newfound appreciation for abortion? Was it in the same day? <laughs> a hell of a day. I, I got a hell of a day. I, I got to say, this leaked memo on Roe v. Wade has been a really clarifying moment, I think, for the Never Trump yes. movement, which I've really enjoyed a lot. I'm sure you guys have as, as well. I don't, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, these people are full of shit. And if you listen <laughs> to this, you probably think they're full of shit already. And so I don't have to convince you of that. But it is nice to see the mask completely slip off, 
right? Yeah. That these people who pretend that they are the true conservatives out there who just want to restore the Republican Party are complete fucking frauds who are actually Democrats. They're just Democrats. Yeah, right, the, right. Here's the thing is, I don't think they're even Democrats. I think they are just nihilists. Uh, opportunists. Right? They, opportunists. They, they are not conservatives. They have no beliefs in anything. They just know that, I mean, their core beliefs, like a lot of them are just a bunch of the neocons that were just kicked out, right? Their core beliefs are now more at home within the Democrat Party, and they can't say, oh, well, you know, as a conservative, I oppose abortion, because then these idiots will stop buying their books. They're going to stop booking them for MSNBC. Yeah. So they know, well, the money, you know, the yeah. the people who pay my checks, they want me to be for abortion, so I'm going to come out and say I'm for abortion. If, which is amazing, because if yes. there's ever an issue where you don't get to get, like— yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, you cannot like some candidates. You can like some others. I understand that Trump broke some people. But one thing you wouldn't think would change is whether or not you think a baby is a baby. Right. Yeah. But but you know what I mean? It, like, that seems like a threshold question to me. If you're listening to this and, and you're not very online uh, like I am and you haven't poured through all of these statements from all these never Trump people, the one you really got to read because it's the most tortured bullshit you'll ever read is Evan McMullen, oh. old McMuffin, who ran in 2016 as the independent candidate, the CIA spook, who decides he's going to be the president of the United States. Right. <laughs> Insane. It now he's going to... stiffs his vendors right, in the process. stiffs his vendors in the process. Doesn't now pay his bills. Now he's going to run against Mike Lee in Utah, and he's going to put out this statement. It's, it's got, the thing's got to be 500 words about how I'm pro-life, but also we shouldn't have done this. Yeah, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. I'm pro-life, but Roe v. Wade was what sort, awesome. What sort of conservative are you, dude? You think you're going to restore the Republican Party and you're going to get wishy-washy on life? He's an fuck idiot. Fuck you. He's an idiot. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Speaking of, did you see the Washington uh, Post opinion section today? No, no I completely no. missed it. Oh, my God. This is the most amazing thing. Occasionally, I just tune in to try to figure out it, because, because I think that they've so lost their mind that it, it provides comic relief, mm -hmm. right? Let me just read through a couple of these here. Uh, the court might never recover from overturning Roe. Incredible. Oh, my goodness. oh and that was the Ed board, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. GOP roars about abortion. Then they abandon the children. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just like this is like the juvenile talking point of like yeah. high school liberal arts Professor. It's like first year political yeah, science right. kid. They're right. super excited about the first week. <laughs> yeah, the kid gets born and then you abandon it. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> uh, Alito's draft opinion would imperil more than he's letting on, which is probably for it's furthering that lie that this will in any way affect like uh, like a lot of libs have been trying to push. To, well, this would make interracial marriages illegal. That's the that's the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. Yeah, we, I, I, we went straight and we read straight from the opinion yesterday on the special. It says specifically, this does not affect anything having to do with right. interracial marriage. Inter this only has to do with abortion. Interracial marriage. They're, yeah, they're but that's playing anything they can. But that's honestly what these people think of. I mean, this is when I, when I talk about how they look at us like zoo animals. This is honestly what they think. Yeah. They think that there is... I've never met anyone. And I mean that sincerely. I've met some fucked up people. <laughs> I have never met anyone who opposes interracial marriage. Much less one that calls themselves a card-carrying Republican. Yeah. And the fact of the matter that these guys could say that when Clarence Thomas is the is the deciding vote on the on the court, anybody want to talk about the fact that he's got an interracial marriage? I mean, this, unbelievable. It's just it's unbelievable. Not, not only are the libs saying it, but the Washington Post is printing it. Yeah. 
The it's, Washington Post is a garbage rag. Eric, Let's be honest Eric Swalwell tweeted this out, right? And I mean, I didn't see Glenn Kessler do a fact check of that. Well, I, well, I didn't see PolitiFact do a fact check of that. Where's this disinformation board our government yeah, set up to now that? to I think, talk I about? I think Fang Fang was concerned. She said, Eric, you got to put this out there. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a very good friend of the program, Wesley Hunt, who's done a ride yeah. along here in an interview. Here, yeah. He had a fantastic quote tweet dunk on Swalwell. I, let me just read it for folks. Hi, Eric. My name is Wesley Hunt. I'm a Republican nominee for a congressional district that is 70 percent white. I'm black. I'm in an interracial marriage, and my wife and I have two biracial daughters. Republicans are celebrating diversity while white liberals like yourself race bait. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Just crushed Hell yeah. Oh, that just runs him over with a dump truck. Yes, Wesley's the man. Swalwell's just left to fart in the wind. I love that. that. It's going to need a little fang-fang relief after that situation. Um, So the other thing that we, outside of the election that has caught our eye is the continued uh, attempt, I guess I should say, by the mainstream media to sort of like cover up what's happening in our economy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's CNN. You recall like back in December of 2021, they did basically made a full throated effort to say that inflation is actually good. Yeah. 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 That that was one of the steps of like, the denial. The denial was it's not happening. It's transitory. It's actually good. Yeah, that was, that's yeah. the sort of steps yeah. they went on. So now they've got guests on who are saying the re- a recession is good. Uh. <laughs> 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 the real Baghdad Bob territory here. Raise interest rates, perhaps deal with the reset with a recession, but in the bigger picture of things, it may benefit because it will give the economy a shock. I mean, oh like, my god! It is really wild. Really yeah. wild, like the, the the lengths that they're going to, to try to cover up for how terrible things are, and how I mean, any polling that you look at, Americans by and large tell you overwhelmingly, they were better off two years ago than they are today, and all they have left, you know, these left wing publications and 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 television channels is, listen, we have to keep hammering the message, you know, everything is good. Listen to the Ministry of Truth. Biden is saving us. Remember, Trump is the devil. They have to keep because, you know, there's this problem that a lot of liberals are facing right now in their brains where (laughs) they on a day to day basis, they know things are getting worse. They know gas is more expensive. They know groceries are more expensive. They know the cost of everything is going up. They know crime is becoming a, a bigger and bigger problem. But they have to tell themselves, no, I was a good person voting for Biden. They told me I voted for Biden. I'm a good person. So I got to be a good person. So I got to keep supporting Biden. Like they're trapped in this mindset. I mean, what might be more pernicious about all of this is that I'm not sure that they actually understand things are bad. Like the people that are doing the commentary on this, including like a who's who of the liberal glitterati, like sit on all these corporate boards so they can deal with the wokeness. They sit at home on Zoom and not deal with the masses. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. They're undoubtedly on contract somewhere in some Ivy League school. Right. They're paid to to share their thoughts on the world at large. They're entirely insulated from the sort of shock that they seemingly want for our economy. And only then can you say something like a recession is good. Right. 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 What it reminds me of is um, you you ever seen that movie, The Big Short? Yeah. I love love The Big Short. Well, there's this really interesting part in it when um, the, the two the two guys with their own little fund, you know, they yeah. call it brown, brownstone capital or whatever it was called. Anyway, 
uh, they got that Ben Rickert guy who's got the ISDA that's going to allow them to trade trade options or whatever. And he's sort of like their guide, their look, you know, their Yoda as they go through this process of, 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 you know, buying these credit default swaps and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, at one point, they really figure out they're right. You know, they're right. They're going to get paid on this. And they're in Las Vegas at this convention and they're start they start dancing and Ben Rickert, who's who's played um, in it by um, who was married to Jennifer Aniston? Brad Pitt. Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt played him. Yeah, Brad Pitt played him. And he goes, stop fucking dancing. And he's like, did you know that every one percent unemployment goes up? Forty thousand people die. Did you know that? Oh. And, you know, because like t- to people like like. Sometimes to people like this, like everybody's just numbers, right? Like yeah. everybody's just a statistic. But it's like these are people's fucking lives. Yep. Like there is no recession that's good for the economy. That's ex- Fuck you. Yeah. It's exactly. That's a great the, the, point. The, these these people are the richest among us, and the richest among us are forever insulated, forever insulated from any sort of difficulty that the normal people have to deal with. And you know something else? Speaking of their insulation and their house of insulation, last weekend. The White House Correspondents Party. We talked about it. Uh, the journos all went. The journos all celebrated and smug what happened to them. It's a super spread event. <laughs> it's the best part. The best part is that like these guys for two years convinced the American people that the mere presence of COVID demanded that they sit inside their homes, lose their jobs, have their kids schooled by a, a screen where they probably teach them critical race theory. And now that they've decided for themselves that it's a political liability for the Biden administration to continue with COVID, uh, they will they will cast off their masks and head to a twenty five hundred person dinner and brunches and everything else. Well, they all got COVID. I mean, that's basically <laughs> Big surprise. Basically, the way it went down, right? I mean, it seems like there's just been a ton of it, and like all the Democrat and uh, and and journo population is busily texting amongst themselves. To try to figure out like whether they were exposed. Well, and and they they had to figure it out pretty quickly because ABC's John Carl, who shook hands with Joe Biden and was sitting next to Kim Kardashian, has fallen ill. Oh boy! Yikes! Getting close. These articles are hilarious. They're like all these journos have been trading texts asking if if they've tested positive. I'm like, how's that different than regular journo texts? Yeah, <laughs> that's an everyday occurrence. <laughs> we just tagged it to the correspondence dinner. Oh, uh, 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 Smug, we've got a couple of things to clean up from your, your speaking uh, on, I guess it was Tuesday's his, episode. His turkey talk. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, we, we are a very reliable source of information. So uh, <laughs> McDaniel, producer for the show. The ombudsman. He's got the ombudsman's report. It says, and I'm going to read this word for it so we don't mess up. On Tuesday's episode of the program, Mr. Smug referenced the price of a turkey to be, quote, $100. The program received some <laughs> listener comments and investigated. From the Farm Bureau in 2021, the centerpiece on most Thanksgiving tables, the turkey costs more than last year at $23.99 for a 16-pound bird. (laughs) But is that enough? The ruthless team dug deeper. The USDA publishes a weekly report of retail turkey prices advertised by grocery stores nationwide. Yes, that's actually a real thing. You go to USDA.gov. From the weekly cents per pound from the report ending April 29, 2022, fresh hands were 151 cents per pound. So in order to pay 100 for fresh turkey at today's price of 151 cents per pound, uh, the likely cheaper, the larger the bird. About 18% higher this uh, week than last year, by the way. That tells you about the Biden inflation when the price was around 127 cents per pound. You could buy a 66-pound turkey for the current 151 cents per pound. But is this type of turkey possible? The answer is yes. The largest <laughs> turkey ever was 86 pounds. 
Therefore, the ruthless team fact-checks Mr. Smug's assertion that a turkey costs 100 to be, quote, not wholly impossible. (laughs) (laughs) This is a a real Glenn Kessler. (laughs) That's so good. We rate no like, Pinocchio. Like you're the li- you're the lib in this situation. <laughs> it says more if you're buying a turkey fully prepared, you can easily pay over a hundred dollars with some options as much as three hundred from you know a place like Gold Belly, which you know it, it, this is what's funny. It, you know what you would you would let you have installment payments smug for three hundred dollars. Smug smug would be the guy the guy who hates uh you know Southwest yeah. and has, insists on 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 flying first class and all of that sort of stuff. I can stuff. see Gold Belly. He'd be the Gold turkey. Belly turkey yeah. delivery guy. Also, I kind of thought you were. I, I thought you were joking. I thought you were being facetious when you said a hundred dollars. So I didn't say anything about it. And also, in my defense. If anyone saw the all-time greatest game show, Supermarket Sweep. Yeah. Oh yeah. When they throw a when turkey the in there, those are a hundred a pop. Right. When they ring them up. So you know, from an early age, it's been implanted in my brain. Those are a hundred a pop. <laughs> <laughs> Supermarket sweep would not lie to me. Why would they lie? <laughs> it's listen, listen. It's a, it's a it's just a fantastic bit. But do you guys know what is not a bit? What's that? Did you see the fact checkers on Joe Biden's uh, handshake? Remember when he turned around after? Oh after yeah, he, he shook speaking? the air. He turned around. He shook the air. Do you know that the fact checkers weighed in on that and said that it it was not accurate that he wasn't actually shaking the air? Don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe your lying. He wasn't shaking the air because he was kind of looking at people who were off to the side and maybe behind him, and he was he was addressing. He was shaking them. He was, <laughs> there was nobody there. What a nightmare! And Eliana Johnson actually wrote a piece at Washington Free Beacon about this. It's very very funny. Oh, so that's you good. Check it out. I like that a lot. Yep. So rounding out our, our animal news, uh, it turns out that the turkeys that we've talked about, the one turkey that's basically assaulting people on the Anacostia River Walk here in D.C., is not alone. Uh, there are many turkeys in this area. Uh, people have their, their eye out for them. There's maybe at least two or 300 Which is awesome. wild turkeys in this area. And so, you know, like this could become part of Hank's deal. And if, if all of them are activated, you know, like Reggie Jackson and Naked Gun, uh, you could have a real problem on your hands. And, and and continuing along the whole revenge of the animals theme. So we'd previously, I mean, we've extensively covered Fox. Oh, news. the Fox, yeah. The, the, the Fox News of the Fox First that person. was the Capitol. Yeah. You know, uh, allegedly attacking people. We've had some guests who've also said, you know, they'd witnessed attacks firsthand. What do you mean? We've had our, our <laughs> Tuesday guest, Mick Henry, was bit. He had to have rabies shots. So I always tend to side with Fox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got to hear both sides. Got to hear both sides. Um, so Fox what's great his. is that so so the, the fox that was in the capital area, they killed it. They killed all its little baby foxes that it had, too. Well, foxes strike back. So there was a fox that killed 25 flamingos at the Smithsonian Zoo. That is a, I mean, it, the fox, dude. 25. You got to keep your eye on the fox these days. Well, at 25, he's just killing for fun. Yes. That's, <laughs> this, this is a, it's a this, serial killing this fox. Is, right, this is a sociopathic <laughs> fox. It, it says here, the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute announced Tuesday the loss of several birds due to a wild fox attack. According to the statement, staff members arrived at the outdoor board exhibit on Monday to their horror, to find the dead flamingos. <laughs> 25 of the 74 flamingos had been killed. 25. I mean, here's my thinking, too. Is like, what are the flamingos thinking? Like, okay, let's say the fox has killed one, two. Let's say he's, like, five deep. He's already killed five. At these what are point are flamingos birds. like, all right, guys, what are we going to do about this? These, are not, <laughs> these are not smart birds. I mean, they're getting, let's say, 10 deep. 
He gets 10 D. <laughs> he gets 10 bodies. At what point are you like, okay, there's one fox, guys. We gotta go for this. <laughs> there's like 70 of us left. <laughs> It's Fox. Fox is making a run. Fox, to quote Always Sunny in Philadelphia, that Fox was just testing the tensile strength of the bird's neck at that point. <laughs> He's just crushing necks, crushing necks, moving on to the yeah, next. Well, it's it's got to be one shot kills. It's got to be because, like, to get through 25 in a night. Right. I mean, he was. He was. Well, I don't know because if you think about the relative size of a fox, even that monster that was on Capitol Hill, it's a pretty small animal. Yeah, how's he taking him down? Well, here's the, I've got a theory. I've got a theory on this. If you know, if you, if you are familiar with the composition of, of flamingo. They're they all ha- leg, right? They have these tiny little legs. Yeah. Right? And what we know about their attacks on angry Redskins fan and Patrick McHenry is that they went right to the oh. middle of the leg. Oh, flamingo standing on one leg. It takes out the only leg it's So it goes for on. a cripple I the think neck. they snap the thing like a toothpick and down it goes and then bop. Like wow. it's like a two-step process, and then and then on to the next one, yeah, and then on to the next one. I mean that, Poor I mean, and, and that is a great point that Duncan brings up. Like, it, this was not for food. No, this is from malice. No, yeah, <laughs> it's just to establish dominance. I mean, even after a dozen, right? You've racked up a dozen. You're really proving a point. Yeah. You're like, I'm going for 25. <laughs> going like for the, the cream, high score. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of murdering flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I love that. I, I see here that um, McDaniel's put in our document uh, something about in Rome, uh, people being held hostage by an Italian board. As a... Uh, on behalf of the Italian community, I am going to skip this segment. It's so fear. good. You can't give it to Smug and to Ashbrook because they're going to they're no. going to get into the bigotry. I do not. Want, <laughs> I do not. I, I think I think the Italian people have suffered enough on suffered this program. Enough. And I I'm just going to skip right through it. I'm going to skip right through it. Um, all right. So a couple of other items uh, to deal with. You mentioned on the previous program, mm-hmm. Samantha Power. Uh, in her motorcade, killing a child in Cameroon. That's right. Uh, we got some follow-up on that. That it, and and the story is true. Uh, it says uh, um, while she was in Cameroon, the motorcade that Samantha Power uh, was in ran over a child, uh, but security advised her to keep going. So that's why she kept going. That that's that's the story, and they're sticking with it. Okay. I still say you run over a kid. You gotta stop the fucking car. At some point, at some point, leadership takes <laughs> yeah. over there, right? Like when security's like, "We gotta keep going." You're like, "I think that wasn't a speed bump, fellas." <laughs> I, I also that was lo- a child being just killed. How I love the, the amount car? of corrections we have in this particular episode. Right. We're com- we're committed to honesty on this show. And McDaniel's a lawyer, so we make sure we tell the full story. <laughs> That's right. We gotta cover our ass here. <laughs> One thing I wanted to pick up on uh, that we warned about in the previous episode was the idea that corporate America is now going to be the target of the left, right, mm-hmm. over the abortion decision. That's right. Well, it turns out Axios, uh, a day later, reports what we were talking about. Companies have gotten significantly more outspoken on a host of political and social issues. Abortion was a tougher one to begin with, and the Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe v. Wade is likely to come just as big corporations are growing more afraid of how much political activism can cost them. Yep. That is because of Ron DeSantis, and that is because of Disney. And it's because Republicans understand that these people are not a part of their constituency any longer, right? That that there is absolutely no need to stand with woke corporations. Can you imagine a corporation weighing in on an issue as divisive and as 
split down the middle as as abortion it'd be nuts and i mean this is the thing i said like you know after after ron DeSantis, a couple of things become increasingly clear there's no free shots anymore right no free like shots. you can't just be a company and jump in on a social issue and think you're going to be a hero and get away with it that's not happening but this is compounded by the problem that the dems always create for themselves they get a wave election right and then they don't get anything accomplished because they're only talking to themselves what issues have they focused on what issues getting apple to put out an emoji of a pregnant guy like okay congratulations joe biden like do you know what inflation is looking like these days that's off you know like it's incredible <laughs> and that's the problem is they only talk to themselves real people you know voters in this country are pissed off because everything's more expensive and 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 it's wild you see you see them and you see journos because they're eventually they're pretty much the same at this point like it's just a mind meld and uh between the press corps and the white house of they're like oh wow i think abortion is going to really get voters out every single person who thought abortion is like their number one issue votes every time yep votes every time yep it is well anyway look we're going to have a lot more to say about that topic as we go along here there's one more thing i want to hit before we get out of here fellas did you guys see the Tort taylor lorenz exchange with the drudge report yes. yeah it was unbelievable yes holy smokes so this this lady first of all she's unemployable i can't believe that she holds a job anywhere let alone mm-hmm. the washington but i mean i guess it, the only place she could hold a she, job it, she's turned into an extortion racket yeah like the, she had the new york times hire her and then she made him pay her more because she threatened to start a st- sub stack so they had to pay her more and then she left and she was like, by the way, fuck the New York Times. Yeah. Washington Post is hiring me now. Totally. <laughs> it's unreal. Well, so she uh, talked about how the Drudge Report, Taylor Lorenz, I'm going to quote from New York Post, Taylor Lorenz, a controversial Washington Post technology columnist, walked back claims that she was relentlessly harassed by an editor of the Drudge Report. Lorenz uh, on Monday tweeted the Drudge Report staffer kept contacting her and vowed he would destroy her career. Well, it turns out all of that was bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Complete bullshit. This lady, is there ever been anyone who's been more unmasked as a complete liar than her or a hypocrite or anything else? I mean, well, she's kind of like the sociopathic fox. She just does it to do it. She just (laughs) lies for fun. Like later in this story from the New York Post, it says Lorenz later told CNN that her initial tweet was a joke. And she thought it was hilarious that people believed her career could have been endangered by the Drudge Report. That is so Wow, cool bit. Oh, funny. Lying to everybody about being harassed. This is some reporter who, who, who claims, reporter. claims that, that female harassment on the internet is like something that she really cares about. And then she constantly is joking about it. Like Oh, and, and, and disinformation. Right. When like, so Matt Drudge contacted CNN and, and was like, it says, uh, he, wait, he, that he, no, he never contacted her. No one with Drudge Report ever contacted her, and he demanded that Lauren's issue a correction. And so she deleted the tweet and then posted that clarification. For anyone who saw my post about this man, you know, uh, I heard from Matt Drudge, this man, uh, she, she basically just walks it all back. Right. And thinks it's okay, saying it's a joke. Yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's pathetic. We'll continue to talk about it. Uh, let's get to our interview. This is the good stuff. You're going to want to hear this for your bets on Saturday. I want to welcome to the program a friend of mine. Um, a guy I've gotten to know fairly well through the years, an absolute prince of a man, uh, congressman from Kentucky's sixth district, Andy Barr. Welcome. Josh, it's great to be with you as a fan of Ruthless podcast and uh, as a friend of yours for many years. Great to be on the program. Well, listen, we wanted to get your timing is not uh, totally coincidental uh, for this for this booking. 
Uh, you're the man who knows more about horse racing than anybody in Congress, which, you know, it's good because if you didn't, that would be problematic, right? Uh, being from where you're from. But yeah, we're run up to Derby week. It, this is the biggest week uh, for my constituents in the 6th District, Central Kentucky. Churchill Downs is not in my district. It's 70 miles up the road in Louisville. But uh, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, the, the big city, the largest city that I represent, is surrounded by 400 world-class horse breeding and thoroughbred racing farms. And uh, while Churchill Downs uh, hosts the, the fastest two minutes in sports, the Run for the Roses, this year it's the 148th edition of the Run for the Roses. We say in central Kentucky, in the bluegrass region of Kentucky, we supply the talent because <laughs> – all, all of the stallions and mares uh, are very busy uh, in the years leading up to the Derby because they're they're producing the foals that become the yearlings that ultimately are sold uh, and trained and become the racehorses that end up uh, in the first Saturday in May on that beautiful track in Louisville. Well, Andy, the good news is the variety program is not going to ask you to, to uh, describe that process in any form of detail, <laughs> but I, I, think, I think we know what you're getting at and you're absolutely right. It is, uh, it's not only part of the culture, it's basically who you are if you're from that region of, of Kentucky. Well, that's right. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. The economic impact is quite significant. And we host at the Keeneland Race Course, the auction, the yearling sales every September where uh, literally full uh, uh, year, yearlings, uh, one-year-old horses can sell to an international audience, an international uh, buyer uh, group, um, multi-million dollar yearling horses uh, in the hopes that that horse will be a fast runner and ultimately win races like the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's a huge part of your district. It's a huge part of, of Kentucky, but it's not just something that everybody just sort of observes and, and allows to just kind of go on. You actually have been involved in a lot of efforts to try to keep race horse racing safe, to try to keep it competitive, the kind of sport people enjoy in the Derby and everything else, because ultimately that's a big part of the economy of the region. That's right. And let's face it, there's a lot of competition for the entertainment dollar. We want a new generation of horse players, of horse fans, yeah. fans of thoroughbred racing. And that is really dependent. The future of thoroughbred racing is dependent on the safety and integrity of the sport. We've had some high profile scandals. Uh, we also have some, um, radical animal rights groups out there like PETA that want to shut down our sport. And uh, we need to be cognizant of that, get ahead of that. And that means we need to promote and protect the animal, uh, these beautiful uh, horses that frankly are treated better than human beings in some cases in my district. Yeah. Uh, but, but the truth is uh, we, we need to promote the safety and integrity of the sport. And so what I did uh, in a bipartisan way with my colleague, Paul Tonko, who represents the Saratoga racetrack up in a very historic racetrack up in uh, upstate New York. We, we came together and we, um, we introduced a bill and, and worked on it for about six to eight years uh, called the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act. Uh, we were able to enlist the support of Leader McConnell, your former boss, and um, Senator Feinstein from uh, California. We passed that bill. It became law. President Trump signed it into law. And now we have a single national uniform medication and racetrack safety program that's being implemented right now. This is not only going to improve and enhance the safety of the sport for both the human and the equine athletes. 
it's going to uh, ensure um, that we have a reputation for integrity. So the horse players, people have confidence when they place a wager that they're betting on a, a drug-free horse. And from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, we're going to have one set of rules. So if you bet on a horse in the Kentucky Derby and then you want to bet on that same horse uh, two weeks later in the Preakness Stakes and three weeks later in the Belmont in New York, you're going to know that that horse and the, all the horses in those fields are running under the same set of rules. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that that stands to reason. We wouldn't want to have uh, the NFL or the NBA or the Major League Baseball operating under different rules, depending on which city the, the teams are playing in. Totally. Totally. Well, listen, I mean, it sounds like a no brainer, but it was an incredibly controversial uh, bill that you did incredible work on to try to get over the finish line uh, and ultimately became consensus. I mean, today it sounds like absolutely exactly what you should do, but you really had to fight, like you said, for six, eight years or something like that uh, to get well, it done. I was, I was inspired by Smug because Smug well, says- Well, this is what I wanted to get into. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he says that he can take down a horse. I, I, I just doubt it. Uh, he, he obviously is not a fan of racing because there's no way he could even catch a Kentucky thoroughbred. <laughs> no, he could not catch. I think he, I think he will concede that he can't catch a Kentucky Derby horse. Uh, but if you have on the ends of the spectrum, if you've got PETA on one hand, uh, smug might be on the other, right? Oh, Is that yeah. I mean, and PETA has nothing to worry about. The, if, if, if you see these, they can hold their own. These stallions can hold their own. Uh, there was a, there was a great stallion at three chimneys farm in my district called Dynaformer. Dynaformer earned it the, 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 the hard way. He was not a great racehorse necessarily. And so, uh, when he was uh, standing stud, he was first given mares that didn't have a very good pedigree, but he kept producing through those uh, lower tier mares, great runners. And so he started breeding the better and better mares with better pedigrees over the years and became a champion stallion. Ultimately, he sired a, a Barbaro, which was a famous oh, okay, horse yeah. in the Preakness. But, but here's the thing about Dynaformer. Dynaformer was a mean horse, big, gigantic stallion. He bit off the finger of his groom. So PETA, PETA has nothing to worry about. These stallions can, and these horses, these thoroughbreds, especially when they're breeding, they can, they can hold their own. So what, how much time do you give Smug from entering the field with Dinah to him laying flat on his back? He has no shot against Dynaformer. Dynaformer regrettably, regrettably has gone to horse heaven, but, but these, uh, there are other other stallions and horses. He wouldn't want to be in the same uh, in this in the in the in the same paddock with these horses. Yeah, he has somewhat of a controversial view of of horses, right? He's he's big on junky horses. He's big on he thinks he could take horses. I think what we need to do is get him down there and trot around your uh, your district a little bit. He may have a reformed view of all of that. Well, I you know I I heard that. Uh, you had on your program, my ranking member, my good friend, Patrick McHenry, yeah. he was re recounting his encounter with a rabbit, uh, a rabies infected. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, do you guys have to take any uh, like prophylactic committee action to make sure he's not infecting anybody after that situation? Well, you know, uh, you know, COVID taught us uh, a lot and, and we're, we're, we're wearing like spacesuits around uh, Patrick now, you know, we're, keeping our social distancing and we're wearing our masks around, uh, around him because we know he's had too many interactions with wild foxes on the, on the national mall. 
A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I like a harrowing story. Right. We're, we're, but we think he's ultimately responsible for the, the untimely uh, passing of the Fox and, and all of their, his family, I guess. So. I know. Speaking of PETA, I think uh, given the, given the fact that that, that Fox is now in Fox heaven, I think uh, PETA might be coming after Congressman McHenry. That's what I'm thinking. I and mean, we discussed it briefly. I think, you know, we'll see. We're going to keep an eye on it. McHenry's not out, uh, of, out of the woods yet. <laughs> um, so here's the thing before we get off horses. Um, we love to bet on things here on the Variety Program. Uh, we bet on basically everything. We have a partnership with Predict It, where we're now even betting on politics. But we really, all of us, love to pay attention to horse racing. And I figured if there's one guy who we're going to get some inside tips on, it, it's you. So, like, what do you got for us, Andy? Is there something? Well, I, can't, like- I, I can't wait to go. I love. Uh, listen. The caveat up front is that uh, I'm not super great at handicapping, even though I grew up around Keeneland and, and grew up around horses. Uh, but I have my biases and the favorite, it looks like the morning line favorite for the 148th run for the Roses is a horse called Zandon. I like this horse. It's three to one morning line. But again, I'm biased why I like this horse. This horse uh, won the bluegrass stakes, the great one. Oh yeah, this was like a couple of weeks back, right? At in Keeneland. Exactly, exactly. And and so uh, the bluegrass stakes is is the the, the biggest race uh, in my congressional district at uh, the famous Keeneland Racecourse. So we love to Beautiful see bluegrass. Place, by the way, Beautiful yeah. place. We, we love to see uh, bluegrass stakes uh, winners win, go on and win the Kentucky Derby. Um, and the horse just looks fantastic. Uh, in his, um, he's, he's peaking at the right time. He's putting himself in contention without even urging from his jockey. I mean, when you get into a big, a tough uh, field like the Kentucky Derby, if you, if you have the jockey urging on a horse that's doing it on his own, look out. That horse uh, is, is, uh, is the favorite for a reason. Um, the, other, the other horse, if you want a long shot, if you're a horse player, if you want to, to put uh, a horse in the money. Like you getting know, the exacta going? Yeah, an exotic back like, like an exactor trifecta. Put it in there with a few of the favorites and, and um, get some value out of your bet. I like this horse called Tis the Bomb. Ah. Tis, the bomb Tis the Bomb is at 30 to 1 right now. But I like it, um, again, biased because the trainer, Kenny McPeak, is a Lexington, Kentucky guy. He knows. Are you just homering? Are you just getting, is this a homer thing where you're going to go and you're going to tell me everybody who's raised a horse in your district is the favorite and I'm going to bet on them and lose all my money? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, just to show how much of a homer I am, uh, (laughs) Tis the Bomb uh, came in second in the bourbon stakes. So, you know, I'm the, I'm the co-chairman of the, yeah, I'm the, I'm the co-chairman of the Congressional Horse Caucus and the Bourbon Caucus. Uh, I represent the, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. So anything with bourbon or Lexington or Keeneland, I am for it. Well, I'm going. That's where I'm going next is bourbon. So this is perfect. But I got it. We've got to round out what we got for picks. This is. I, but I'm afraid what I'm going to be dealing with is some sway back because they pulled off the field of Kentucky and you're betting on them just because of where they're from. Well, that's how we do it. You know, that's how we do it. There's listen, I mean, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times um, the your special lady in your life will go to the track and, and not look at all at the program. You've been sitting there slaving over the, the daily racing form and you're looking at statistics and numbers and past performances and who they've competed against. And you do all this work, you know, over two, three hours of handicapping and you put, you know, $200 on the race and you, your horse comes in last. 
and your date or your wife uh, looks at the colors and, and likes how pretty That's 100%, the horse looks. That has happened to me 100% of the time. And they win. And they win several thousand dollars based on the look of the silks of the jockey. <laughs> It is. It's it's humiliating, right? At that point, you just got to turn to the bourbon. That's right. But that's that's what ke- that's what keeps us coming back. <laughs> I love it. All right. So we got two horses. You got a third to round out our, our money. Yeah. So I would. Um, OK, here's the thing. I would go with this horse called Epicenter. Um, the horse has, has done little wrong um, in the career and, and enters the derby off of a strong, strong win. Uh, and he's improved. That's what you want to look for. Horses that are are hitting their stride coming in, you know, horses that didn't do very well be in the early part of their career, but but uh, is coming in hot. Those horses are 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 taking to training. And remember, these are young horses, relatively speaking. Yeah, They're right. Three-year-old horses. So look at look at Epicenter, that, uh, which is which is um, uh, seeking now. It's uh, I think it's sixth straight win, but started slowly. So now it's really. Nice. Uh, uh, hitting his his stride and so and his most recent start uh at in the louisiana uh, derby was uh was pre- was pretty good well all right all right so look i think i feel like those are some some pretty good picks i could get my mind wrapped around that i'm increasingly now as i'm thinking about what i'm going to start asking you next andy I, I you're like the the ruthless variety program vice congressman like all of our vices are what you represent <laughs> 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 if, if we've got a problem, you represent I that as well. My colleagues will, they, they see me coming on the house floor. They, oh gosh, here comes bar. What is it? It's some horse racing or bourbon bill. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's anything that we could be more supportive of, frankly, here at the variety program. Uh, let's talk bourbon. Um, First of all, if, if, for all the listeners, if you haven't been down on the bourbon trail, you should do it. It's it's an incredible experience. People take this uh, incredibly seriously as they should because it's become just a massive industry. But what's so unique about this massive industry, in my experience, is although it's grown to proportions that I don't think anybody envisioned, they have a very boutique feel to it, right? It's still done at a very local handcrafted level, which is just so neat. It is. And a lot of these are family owned businesses. Now, some of them, obviously, these distilleries have sold out to big, gigantic uh, um, distilled spirits companies um, like, um, you know, Diageo or um, uh, Sazerac or what have you. Mm-hmm. But the distilleries themselves, some of them still are family owned, like uh, Brown Foreman, um, and they're privately held. But, but some of them um, are public companies now are part of public companies, but still all of them maintain their, uh, their rural character. A lot of yes. these stories are in rural Kentucky. There's a, a multi-generation family tradition. These master distillers are true craftsmen and now craftswomen. We have many women who are getting into the business, but they're all benefiting from this renaissance of uh, aged distilled spirits, especially uh, bourbon. And of course, we all know, and, and your former boss, Mitch McConnell, uh, says it very well that, um, you know, uh, we know that uh, all bourbon in uh, is has to be made in the United States. Uh, 95% of it is uh, a- distilled and aged in Kentucky, but the other 5% is counterfeit. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly. That's exactly right. I remember a story. So uh, he had to do an event with Chuck Schumer 
And I think Chuck Schumer came to Kentucky. It was like for, for college kids at maybe it's the McConnell center or something like that. And Schumer handed him a bottle of what he claimed was New York bourbon of which, you know, it's like a gift, you know? And so everybody's like, you know, plotting and McConnell just straight face looks at this thing. Like doesn't not a muscle moves in his face and he turns it around and he looks at the back and he's like, he points it to Chuck bottled in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and actually, you know, for those of us who really know bourbon, uh, us Kentuckians, there's a reason why bourbon, the bourbon capital is Kentucky. Bourbon was invented here. Um, the pioneers, when they came uh, over the Appalachian Mountains and they settled here, they overproduced the corn. And there was a lot of white oak. And they, what were they going to do with this excess corn? Uh, they were typically on creeks and near mills. And those creeks fed into the Kentucky River, which fed into the Ohio River, which fed into the Mississippi River. And what they ended up discovering is that as they put the distilled corn uh, liquid corn uh, into these barrels. They aged it and they sent that whiskey down the river. It ended up in New Orleans. <laughs> and I've always told my buddy Steve Scalise, the uh, House Republican whip, that um, he may claim uh, he may claim Mardi Gras, but we created it with our <laughs> whiskey. You exported it. You guys are responsible for New Orleans. I, I get That's it right. now. And all those French from the Bourbon region of French uh, France started telling all those Kentucky uh, producers. Uh, about what they what they thought of the the whiskey from Kentucky, and that's how bourbon was born. And um, and now we we've developed this huge industry in Kentucky because of the limestone topography yeah. that we have that produces the best water uh, for our bourbon. And then here's the real secret and why New York could never compete or Texas can never compete with Kentucky is that we have four distinct seasons in Central Kentucky. Uh, we have a relatively cold winter. We have a very hot and humid summer, and we have temperate and cool springs and falls. And there are four distinct seasons, and that's the perfect aging weather uh, climate because you put those those uh, white oak barrels full of that distillate in into these um, rickhouses, and that 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 distillate goes in and out um, and breathes in and out of that charred white oak as it ages over the course of five to 10 to even 20 years. And it makes for the best whiskey in the world. Oh, there's just no question about it. It's not even close. I mean, it really, but you know what the, the funny thing, is, and I learned this when I was working for McConnell is that the challenge of any sort of industry that's sort of unique to a state like this, that goes through the epic growth that it has and has become, you know, just a, a international sensation in a lot of ways. Is you got to look back and try to figure out, like, is it taxed correctly? Is it, I mean, it, so much about the bourbon industry blew up without federal guidelines sort of understanding exactly what it is that we're dealing with from an American export and, and, and even domestically. Uh, right. And I, I imagine that you spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. Absolutely. I mean, the Bourbon Caucus is not just about celebrating this distinctively American spirit and having fun with it. It's It's a big business. There's a lot of jobs and and it's a very tax and trade sensitive industry. And so we've had to really go to bat um, with, uh, for the industry. And, and we've been somewhat successful on the tax front with the, the reduction in the excise, the federal excise tax on distilled spirits. But, but my bill to level the playing field, I think, was one of my great accomplishments for the bourbon industry. We called it the Aged Distilled Spirits Competitiveness Act. 
And it, it deals with the fact that bourbon and other aged distilled spirits was discriminated against just because we aged it. Whereas vodka mm -hmm. and gin and other non-aged distilled spirits were able to write off the interest expenses when the distillate goes into the bottle, uh, we had to age ours. And, and we couldn't, we couldn't uh, the, our uh, distillers couldn't um, uh, recover the interest costs until it went into the bottle. Well, that was a big deal because they had to incur all these interest expenses. Think of it like a mortgage. If, if we've got this mortgage interest deduction, think if you, you could not deduct the interest on your mortgage until you sold your house at the end yeah. of, of owning it. Right. We, we now allow you these distilleries to deduct the interest every year. And that levels the playing field between bourbon and aged distilled spirits and non-aged distilled spirits. So we are much more in a much better, more competitive position relative to these other distilled spirits. I now. love it. I love it. Well, you got a champion in you, Andy Barr. You've never taken your eye off the ball on that. I know we've got some more work to do with beer and wine and parody and everything else, but I know you're on top of everything. You have a, a story about McConnell and Trump, which I don't, I, there's no way that I'm going to be able to leave that on the table. You got to tell this. Well, it was really, I feel like I was a witness to history in many respects. And um, this was, this actually happened on Air Force One in March of 2017. That was a little over one year after Justice Antonin Scalia had passed away. And of course, you recall uh, the, the big uh, decision that uh, leader Mitch McConnell had to make and a, a decision that many of us uh, who are members of the Federalist Society, conservatives, those who believe in originalism and the proper role of the federal judiciary. We will always, always uh, admire Leader McConnell for his strength in that moment to decide and, and decisively and in a principled way decide uh, that the American people were going to decide the next Supreme Court justice to replace Justice Scalia. Um, and so we waited. He waited until after the uh, intervening election in November of 2020. That turned out to be a great decision because President Trump did a great thing. He nominated uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, to be the next justice on the United States Supreme Court. And President Trump was absolutely right to be very proud of that decision, that nomination. So this is uh, during the pendency of the nomination. President Trump had made the announcement. We were on Air Force One traveling to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, to one of those mega Make America Great Again rallies. The president was on fire. He had a great rally. And we were Heading back to the Louisville airport, we got on Air Force One, headed back to Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, uh, and the Air Force officer invited me, uh, Leader McConnell, and Congressman Jamie Comer to join the president in his office on Air Force One, along with uh, Rick Dearborn, who was uh, the head of oh, yeah, White Rick. Yeah. yeah, Legislative Affairs. So those that was the extent of the folks who were in the room. And, you know, uh, President Trump was rightly congratulating himself about this uh, nomination. And uh, as those of us who, who know and have followed President Trump, he was very enthusiastic about uh, the wisdom of his choice. And uh, he, he, he went on for a pretty good while with his monologue about how this was the greatest choice ever to the United States Supreme Court. And uh, at, at some point after about 10 minutes or so, uh, the president uh, took, took a breath. And at that moment, uh, it, it was kind of, it was a little uncomfortable because we all kind of recognized that who was ultimately responsible for the president's ability to make that nomination was sitting right next to the president. That was Mitch McConnell. And when there was a, when there was a pause in the action, uh, leader McConnell didn't miss a beat. He kind of leaned forward and he said, uh, Mr. President, oh, when are you going to thank me for that? <laughs> 
That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> I won't go into the, the exchange that uh, followed, but uh, needless to say, it was uh, it was an entertaining uh, it was an enter- entertaining point. I really feel like that was a moment uh, for history for the history books. Well, it certainly was, and if you consider the news from this week, uh, boy oh boy, was it consequential. Uh, and and again, if you're an appreciator of anything conservative conservative court rulings, conservative legal philosophy, a seminal moment. You, you indeed, sir, were witness to history. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this leak uh, at the Supreme Court is a, is a, a shameful, a shameful episode uh, in the history of the Supreme Court, unprecedented. And I think it will go down as, as a uh, outrageous effort to politicize and undermine the credibility and the independence of the Supreme Court. Uh, it will have ramifications for years to come, unfortunately. And uh, my hope is that uh, Chief Justice Roberts' investigation results in uh, finding the individuals or individual who's responsible, holding them accountable under the the, the code of conduct for judicial employees. That that individual likely, uh, probably a law clerk for a pro-abortion justice, um, should be not only dismissed as an employee of the court, but should be disbarred. Yeah, no, that's really well said, and I and I I can't emphasize that enough from my perspective too. It's just a total breach of protocol, and it, it throws the entire system into a complete chaos. That unfortunately, I think you're right. We're going to be dealing with for years to come. Andy, thanks for that. Listen, before I get you out of here, I got to ask you three questions. Sure. Uh, the first one is, if you can plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? <laughs> Well, it would it, it would consist of bourbon. <laughs> yeah, is it just bourbon, or do you have to like no. marinate something in bourbon? Well, you know, in Kentucky we have this uh, great uh, stew called burgoo. Oh, good. Burgoo. We also have beer cheese, so we have beer cheese and burgoo, and so I'd I'd probably have uh, some beer cheese on on some crackers. I'd have uh, uh, my burgoo, which is a beef stew with some vegetables. It's, be- in it's now it's beef. It hasn't always been beef, Andy. You know that as well as I do. That's right. We, we raise cattle in Kentucky too, not just horses. So we got the beef stew. And then I've got to put my my classic Kentucky dish, which is the hot brown. Oh, yeah. It was named after the Brown Hotel in Lowell. So it'd be an all Kentucky last meal. It would, it would start with a little appetizer with the beer cheese from Winchester, Kentucky. And then I'd, I'd go up from halls on the river and then I'd get my burgoo for my stew. And then I'd eat my, my hot Brown, which is a toast, uh, Turkey. It's got a slice of tomato on it and uh, melted cheddar cheese with uh, two slices of crispy bacon on top. It's and a since, beautiful thing. Since it's, it's, it's my last meal. I don't have to worry about cholesterol. So I'm, I'd, I'd have no guilt in having my hot brown, and then I'd, I'd 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 wash it all down with the with a 23 year Pappy Van Winkle. There you go. There I knew that was coming. Well, listen, that, I I appreciate the Kentucky centric answer. If you wanted pure authenticity points, though, Andy, you'd have the squirrel burgo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, all, all right. Second question. I'm actually interested in your answer on this because you've been involved in public service for quite some time, dedicated your, your life to it. Um, if you never got into politics at all, like if you just had this big sort of hole in the middle of your, your career where you can blue sky, literally anything, you could be absolutely anything and dedicate your time 
to whatever it is you want, what would that be? Blue sky is appropriate for the answer because it would be a Kentucky blue sky. I would be a Kentucky basketball oh, yeah. radio commentator. Uh, I would spend my whole life studying the roster, recruiting, uh, talking about national championships, how we need to retake, uh, we need to overcome Kansas's national championship and win more games to re to regain our status as the winningest program in the history of college basketball, eight national championships. I'm a huge Kentucky basketball fan. I'm a junkie. I'm a friend of coach John Calipari. And, um, and he's a so hell of a guy. He's a hell of a guy. I remember the first meeting I had with Calipari. Uh, McConnell told me he produces more millionaires than uh, than anybody out there. And at Calipari, I think I think Calipari liked that. He 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 definitely does that. And one of my favorite stories. I was interviewed by Andy Katz on ESPN Radio, and he asked me, "So so what's the difference between a congressman and a senator?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you the difference. I'm a congressman, and I'm a Kentucky basketball fan." Mitch McConnell is a senator, and he is a Kentucky basketball fan and a Louisville Cardinal basketball fan. <laughs> yeah, right. It's that whole statewide thing. That's right. <laughs> Although he went that's, to both schools. So that's I guess the difference between a congressman and a senator. That's exactly right. Uh, all right. So that makes total sense. And by the way, you can be a huge improvement over Matt Jones. I may be a little bit of a, uh, a, a, a bias on that, but I won't ask you to comment. Agree. Agree. <laughs> um, all right. So third question. This gets a little bit tricky, but our view is that every person is motivated by one of two, th two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody enjoy it enjoys defeat or, or likes, you know, losing or anything like that. It's that there's always a sunny optimist sort of charging up the hill, trying to get to the next deal, the glass half full classic human being, right? The other side of it in the agony of defeat person is every victory they've had lasts about like five minutes. And every defeat or setback that they've ever had, they take with them. They wear it like a backpack and they work against that to vow either not to repeat it or to overcome any challenge that they've had in life. And those are kind of the two poles. Andy, where do you find you? I'm thrilled with victory, but I, I, uh, I am sympathetic to the agony of defeat argument because I believe in persistence. One of my favorite presidents is a Republican uh, president was Calvin Coolidge, who has this great quote about persistence. He says, that the slogan press on will always solve the problems of the human race. And uh, my life has uh, been, and my political career has really been um, characterized by persistence. I think I lost my first race for Congress by 647 votes against the incumbent Democrat. I came back two years later, defeated that same incumbent Democrat. And so I always looked at that, that, that first campaign as phase one of a two phase fight, not as a loss, but as a two phase fight. Yeah. I believe in persistence, and that was the thrill of victory that second round. And in a in a more recent campaign, uh, in a, a tough cycle for Republicans, uh, I was able to overcome a twenty million dollar uh, campaign against us by Amy McGrath. Oh, uh, I've heard that by, name somewhere before. Yeah, and what I loved about that campaign was was um, here was someone who you know admittedly had a had a very uh, admirable military career and service that we all respected, but she had no clue about what the district was where she was attempting to run and the people she was attempting to represent. Uh, she had never lived in the district. They, the liberals uh, had, had recruited her to come into my district because they thought I was the only beatable Republican incumbent in Kentucky. And uh, I, I always laughed when I saw these uh, federal election commission reports and the millions of dollars she was raising from coastal elites who thought that she actually had a chance when 
she was totally out of touch with the the actual constituents she was seeking to represent. So I, I kind of felt like they were just burning all that money uh, as they sent it from New York and and Boston and and Seattle and Los Angeles into Kentucky. And and I and I I feel like that the thrill of that victory uh, really is is a highlight of of, of my uh, congressional career. You did a hell of a job, and that was that was a tough race, and and you beat her so badly she decided to run for Senate and get rung up by twenty. So I think <laughs> I think that the the narratives that you have uh, put in place about her not understanding Kentucky uh, played out pretty well on the statewide level too. <laughs> yeah, and when we were always criticized for running a, a tough or negative campaign, you know, it was basically those TV ads were were my opponent in her own words, and I always said, look if. If this is a negative campaign, she's running a negative campaign against herself. <laughs> exactly. It's her own words. Well, listen, you are uh, the absolute best. Your daughter's doing all right? Yeah, they're doing great. I appreciate that. They're, um, they're getting ready for Derby as well. And uh, they're very, very busy these days, doing well in school. And they're active in tennis and gymnastics and, uh, and, and soccer and all kinds of extracurricular activities. Well, you're a hero to a lot of us in more ways than one. Uh, Congressman Andy Barr, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the Derby. I'm coming after you if these picks don't don't come through for me. <laughs> Thanks, Josh, and uh, happy Derby, everyone. Man, that guy is just a world-class fella, huh? He's good. You know, what people don't know about Andy is that he lost his wife. She was in her 30s. Um, and, you know, he, he's a single dad, right? And chosen to stay in a life of public service serve his constituents he does always does it with a smile on his face i've never seen him in a bad mood he's a um he's just an incredible individual for so many reasons but but he also is entertaining as hell and he has some great stories i really appreciated him coming on yeah i'm just glad i got a little bit more color on the on the race uh, for this weekend and um we'll have to follow up with some ruthless picks i love it absolutely well absolute banger of an episode if i say so myself gentlemen and a banger of a week. We had three episodes. Hell yeah. The content never stops. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.